Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and UPMC. This week, we're back for part two of our discussion on beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring. Our panelists for these two episodes are Dr. Veena Vanagopalan, who's an associate clinical associate professor in the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Translational Research at the University of Florida, Dr. Joseph Cuddy, who's the Associate Director of Clinical and Economic Studies at the Center for Anti-Infective Research and Development at Hartford Hospital, Dr. Mark Sheets, who's the Professor and Director of Pharmacometrics Center of Excellence at Midwestern University in Chicago, and finally, Dr. Jason Roberts. Jason is an ICU pharmacist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital and he's the NHMRC Practitioner Fellow at the University of Queensland. All four of our panelists have extensive experience in pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, and beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring, so you are in for an absolute treat. If you missed last week's episode, I strongly encourage you to go listen to that one first and then come back to this content. The episode from last week covers foundational knowledge of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, we deep dive into why we choose the targets that we choose when we're studying beta-lactams and then using them in our patients for both efficacy and safety. We talk about determining the optimal patient populations for therapeutic drug monitoring, and we review a recent publication in JAC that associates beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring with clinical outcomes. So now to kick us off today, Joe, Jason, Mark, any other observational data you think worthy to discuss right now before we move into randomized controlled trial data. Can I ask Vina a question? No. No? You're the only one allowed to ask? Unacceptable. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, well, Jason can ask questions because. Oh, 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 just because he's got that beautiful background there and he's Australian. He sounds the way he does. Yeah, his voice is nicer. Because yeah. I don't know answers, apparently. Because uh, yeah. he says, because he says cephalosporin. All right. You can ask a question now. All right. Because uh, <laughs> Vina, what? What uh, do you have ceilings for doses? So what's the biggest cefepime dose you've given down at UF if you're shooting for fourfold greater than the MIC and you have a pseudomonas with an MIC of eight, which is susceptible, um, or, or even 16, you know, and, and is intermediate, how high are you going? Good question, Joe. I can tell you personally, the biggest cefepime dose I've given is 10 grams of continuous infusion. Our institutional beta-lactam policy does not state specific max or ceiling doses. What we are learning through our experience with TDM is that we really have to reframe our understanding about typical beta-lactam doses. In my opinion, you should give the patient how much of a drug they need to achieve those desired targets. Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think there's no such thing as a max dose if you're doing TDM. And, and, and certainly we have other antibiotics available to us now. So if there is a discomfort and there's susceptibility with another drug, it, it's just an easier conversation to go to a more potent agent that already has an S next to it. Uh, but years ago, we didn't have that. We didn't have the ceftolazanes and the ceftazidimabibactams, et cetera. Um, so it, it was not uncommon for us to have to push to 12 grams of meropenem to 20 grams of cefepime. Um, and I've gone much higher with Piptazo uh, at times. But then you have the TDM, you actually have the concentrations to show 
you know what, we are not in a toxic range for these patients. So, so I, I think if you are doing TDM and you're shooting for a target that's reasonable, um, then, then I don't think there needs to be a max dose, at least, a, a, you know, as long as they're in consultation with you. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you, you got to push the dose higher. You, you may have to push it higher. I agree with you, Joe. Thinking about dosing beta-lactams beyond the package and stated doses is a real culture change. Developing that comfort level with dose escalation is a barrier that can be overcome as more of a pharmacist and physicians gain more experience with beta-lactam TDM, but this isn't going to happen overnight. I like that you said that, Vina, because we do beta-lactam TDM very infrequently um, with the help of Ryan Shields' lab, but every now and then we we do for a certain patient and we're you know trying to get to where it's standard of care. But I don't know, a couple months ago, we had a patient that the patient ended up on a seven gram miropenem continuous infusion, a, a patient with Burkholderia and a lot of other things going on. And we had to write in every note on repeat, bolded, size 45 font, like, the seven gram dose is intentional. We promise it's okay. Here are the levels. Um, people were really concerned. And then when we discharged the patient, we got calls from home infusion. Like, what are you doing? This is insanity. So it, that, I think culture shift and, and provider familiarity is a huge, huge barrier to this. Um, Jason, how do you, how do you. With, uh, with, we went through that with aminoglycosides back in, you know, years ago when people were switching to once daily high dose extended interval. Um, I mean, I literally as a postdoc would have pharmacists refuse to, to process the order for 1400 milligrams of tobramycin. Um, you know, like no way, not going to have my name associated with that, that order. Um, and, and at the same time, the levels were dictating that that dose was going to basically be marginal at best for that particular patient. So these are the growing pains that we went through with aminoglycoside uh, dosing strategy alterations, and, and we're going to go through them with the beta-lactams as well. And yeah. Aaron, back to your original question, you know, are there more observational studies? Absolutely. I mean, Vina, Chuck, and Moe's data are emblematic and representative of the observational data. And I think that's a great transition to what Jason's now doing with randomized trials, um, because that's that's the next step. COVID has taught us that we can't just rely on observational data, but it is important to remember, this is the best available data at this time. Um, and so until we have better data, um, I think we're we're compelled to act for our patient's benefit. Absolutely. So, so Jason, talk to us about the better say, data. Be careful, Mark. Um, COVID also taught us we can't rely on in vitro potency data as well, at least at the start. So, but oh, viruses are very man. different. We could get in, we could get into <laughs> hours on this. I'd love to do that. But uh, Aaron, Aaron's giving me the death stare. So, uh, I, I think it's better to let you keep talking. So, uh, I've got one observational study that I wanted to quote, which is actually little known. I think, like uh, I know that. Joe and uh, Mark have been involved in some, some you know, really good observational studies, but this is one from Germany, which I think is quite interesting. And uh, it's from uh, a, an intensive care physician called Daniel Richter. It was published in, in a journal called Infection maybe one or two years ago. And in that study, they had 484 patients worth of data who were receiving piperacil and tazobactam by continuous infusion. And they have a uh, a, a treatment nomogram whereby everyone gets continuous infusion 
and that continuous infusion aims for uh, a particular uh, continuous infusion steady state concentration. They try to aim for 32 to 64. Uh, and so what they did is they reported the outcomes for patients based on their first measured concentration. And this is actually one of the big problems with all of the observational studies is basically they just say, well, this is the first um, concentration we measured. This is what the outcome was for those patients. It's never about we intervened and we changed the dose and this is what the effect was on outcome. That has never been done that I'm aware of, except for one study that I'll, I'll mention in a moment. But this study uh, from this German group, they showed uh, a big difference in hospital mortality with the different concentrations of uh, steady state concentration of piperacillin tazobactam. So if you had an exposure of 16 to 32, the hospital mortality was 21%. So these, these are critically ill patients uh, that were included in this study. If you were between 33 to 64 milligram per litre, then your hospital mortality was 14%. So that's 7% lower. And then if your steady state concentration, the first measured value was over 64, then your hospital mortality was 29.5%. So all of those were statistically significant differences showing that uh, for them there was a sweet spot of, of uh, 33 to 64 milligram per litre. Uh, now, it is just observational data. As I said, there's nothing there about intervening. Uh, and like all of the observational data, all it does is report what exposure before any intervention was associated with, with better outcomes. But you know, it was quite a strong mortality signal that was shown in that study, probably because of the, you know, the large sample size. The other study, which is also a German study, which is unpublished as yet, but has been submitted to ECNID as a poster, is a randomised controlled trial called the TARGET study, which is again uh, by the same group. Uh, it's led by uh, an intensive care physician called Stefan Hagel. And uh, that, has, that enrolled about 230 critically ill patients. They were randomised to receive piperacillin and tazobactam by continuous infusion or continuous infusion plus TDM. Now, I'm not allowed to disclose the results, ironically, but in coming months, you will see uh, what the outcomes were for that study. But I will highlight that it was only 230 patients that were included. And across the, they had multiple centres that were involved. They had a lot of trouble getting to that sample size because one of the problems with TDM is, is there enough sites which have on-site TDM where people can be, have a timely intervention provided? And I think that's what one of the big challenges will be is that, you know, of course the next advance will be a single centre randomised controlled trial and that'd be great, but that doesn't tell you much about the generalizability of the intervention as you would see in a multi-centre study. And those multi-centre studies would be really difficult to do. Uh, and I, I wonder whether or not Vina and Joe in particular, how comfortable they would be not randomising patients who they would typically perform TDM on in their centres. And I have this feeling that when I say to uh, some of my intensivists that what do you think about us doing um, a study whereby we now no longer offer TDM to all patients, I guarantee you that they'll say, no, I don't, I'm not comfortable with doing that because I'm, I use that as part of my treatment algorithm for patients now. And so I would have trouble getting intensivists to allow their patients to participate in those kind of studies. We are definitely waiting for the target data. Um, you know, that, that study is a very exciting study. And there's another one called the Dolphin Study, um, 
I'm not sure where the, how they came up with that name, uh, which not only includes beta-lactam TDM, but I think includes like quinolones and, and other agents as well. Um, and, and that's also a European-based study. Uh, I think you folks in, in Europe and, and Australia are way ahead of us uh, in, in, in the US with, with TDM. Uh, and are much more comfortable. So I probably wouldn't get as much pushback from our ICU docs with whether we wanted to not do TDM because it's not something they're used to. Um, and, and maybe at Venus site, uh, which are have it more standardized, we're at Hartford more like Aaron in Pittsburgh where we do it on isolated individual patients. Um, and it's usually our ID docs that reach out to us or we're somehow associated with the case um, and, and recommend, you know, getting some levels on these patients, whether it was CF patients or folks on, on CVVHDF. So I, I think, uh, this is a great opportunity to start talking about the randomized trials because, you know, to my knowledge, there are two already published, which are small studies and have shown that, uh, that TDM absolutely increased the likelihood of hitting a certain exposure that they were targeting. Very often it was either 100% time above the MIC or again, this magical fourfold greater than the MIC. So TDM, it, that's what it's designed to do. If you change the dose and remeasure your concentrations, you can eventually get there provided you're okay with not having a ceiling effect. The problem with those two randomized trials that are already published is that they were small. So the clinical outcomes of them basically showed no difference. So, so we are anxiously awaiting Dolphin and Target, um, which are larger studies and maybe will reveal that there, there could be some clinical benefits. I think on a case-by-case -case basis, all of us have probably seen cases where exposure was low, we did TDM, we changed the dose, we increased it, you know, and, and or, or gave it as a different infusion duration, and then the patient did well. Um, but those are individual cases, and it's not, not true data analysis of, of how, how TDM could have affected their, their care. So, J Jason, question for you on, you know, to get back to how important exposure is, Bling 2. Um, we, we were so excited uh, that when Bling 2 went underway and it didn't necessarily reveal the results that we had hoped for, that continuous infusion was going to be the, the magical bullet for, for these severe sepsis patients. Could you comment on why, uh, why you thought that was the case um, and, and perhaps how, it, how exposure had something to do with that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question. So the, the Bling study... Uh, was randomizing critically ill patients with sepsis to continuous infusion or bolus dosing of the chosen antibiotic. Now, our study antibiotics were Piperson, Tazobactam, and Meropenem. Uh, and in earlier studies, we actually also had um, Ticosyl and Clavulinic acid as well as uh, Kepapine. But in Bling 2, it was just Meropenem, Piperson, Tazobactam, and it was just the method of infusion, which was the difference between the two groups. Now, there was no difference between the primary outcome, which was ventilated three days uh, to day 28, and uh, there was no statistically significant difference in mortality as well. Now, this included 420 patients, I think 25 intensive care units throughout Australia, New Zealand and Hong Kong, and was a slightly surprising result to us until we looked in a lot of detail at the microbiology 
of the patients as well as the duration of the intervention that they receive. So the, there are a lot of low MIC organisms uh, present in that infection in that uh, that study, and that's really indicative of what Australia is like. That we have a lot of uh, E. coli's that have very low MICs, and uh, so to be trying to play around with uh, concentrations which are sailing well above that MIC isn't going to make that much of a difference. And so these, of course, are just justifications for why it probably didn't work. The other issue, of course, to consider is maybe it just doesn't work. So that's what the BLEEN3 study will tell us, and I'll comment on that in a second. But the other issue is, is that um, there was not a large number of patients that were receiving at least four days' worth of therapy, and so that means that they can't really have been so critically unwell with sepsis that they only needed to have two or three days' worth of, of antimicrobial treatment. Uh, and so... That was really a bit of a patient selection issue, as was the fact that there was 24 25% of patients had a renal replacement therapy requirement. And typically, my observation is, is that it's pretty rare that we underdose patients that are on renal replacement therapy. Uh, and so all of those factors is, has sort of allowed me to have this justification that, well, we need to do a bigger and better study select patients who this is interventions most likely to work in better in our inclusion exclusion criteria and then and then test it uh, better than what we we did initially so there's that iterative process of learning about, about making better choices about which patients are included and so if you'll allow me to go on and talk about bling three or if that's okay yes, please um, yeah so that's a it's essentially essentially an extension of BLING2, except the target enrollment 7,000 patients. Currently, about 5,200 patients have been enrolled. Um, it's being run in about 100 intensive care units around the world, six countries, uh, and uh, we've put a, a ceiling on the number of Australian patients that can be enrolled. So only 2,000 Australian patients uh, from Australia and New Zealand because you know we don't want to have too many low MICs, and so. We've got patients from Malaysia uh, who are being enrolled in the study and we learned from another randomised controlled trial called the BLISS study that they seem to have a lot of non-fermenting gram-negative bacilli which, uh, in whom that they are likely to have higher MICs and so the intervention is likely to be more important. Uh, we've got a lot of sites in the UK that are, are, are a powerhouse of enrolment and have been fantastic and they certainly have um, greater problems with, with ESBLs uh, than, than we do in Australia. So there's um, likely to be um, higher MICs, particularly for Diptazo there. And we've also got sites in, in Belgium, Sweden and France. So, uh, you know, I think that by mid to late next year, we'll have a, a really interesting answer to that particular topic. Uh, the final comment I'd make is that my observation is that that's really the best patient group to study in a trial. You know, if you had to try and select, well, who are these patients that are most likely to benefit from a dosing intervention? It really is the patients that are really sick, most likely to have a high MIC infection uh, because they're the ones in whom that, you know, that, that exposure drug is likely to have a bigger effect on whether or not there's clinical cure or whether or not they survive from the infection. Uh, so... And I'll just it jump really in on that. I think that's that's awesome, Jason. And, you know, kudos to you and your group for getting this launched. Um, and, you know, Joe talked about CART. CART splits, uh, you know, into high and low. Um, and 
I think it was your Dolly study as well found something that we found in the observational data is that there is this sweet spot. There is this sort of Goldilocks effect. Because if you think about it, if you're super healthy, you don't get much of a benefit from antibiotics um, if you're doing exceedingly well. Now, you know, getting the dose right for something like um, an ear infection still will have some benefit, but not, not much of a benefit. But um, at the other end of the spectrum, we also know that antibiotics don't raise the dead. So once your Apache's up over 23, 24, the antibiotics at that point just really can't help. I mean, the horse is already out of the barn. It, really, the, the cars are already, are already down and we're waiting to see what happens next. And we actually know what happens next. So I think that's a really important point. And I think it's great that um, the clinical trials moving forward and your clinical trials really do focus in on the patients where it can have a benefit. Because I don't think that all patients will benefit from TDM and dose optimization, uh, but there's probably a select few. Hey, Jason, can I ask why for Bling3 you guys chose 90-day all-cause mortality as the primary endpoint? So we have um, some wonderful clinical trialists in our uh, intensive care community in Australia, and uh, a lot of them do fluid-related studies, you know, in terms of fluid resuscitation choices, uh, protocols, etc. And that is what they really insist on as being the most important, you know, and you can't argue that that's the most important endpoint uh, for any intervention. Does the patient survive? Is, you know, is there a long-term benefit associated with the intervention? The problem, of course, with antibiotics is that, uh, you know, they are trying to work really at an acute stage and they're trying to uh, treat an infection as opposed to the underlying morbidities or illness that the patient may have and it's not necessarily going to overcome that and so it really is a very difficult decision uh, but I, if you've read the protocol paper I've made sure that there's quite a number of secondary endpoints that are included which align more with what I think uh, is more relevant to the intervention but I can't deny the fact that a day 90 mortality endpoint is of you know, fundamental importance to any intervention. No, oh, thank you for that. And then everyone on this call is extremely humble, which is why you guys are awesome. But Jason was also involved with the target trial that he alluded to those results coming soon. So, and in that study, another y'all chose the 100% free time four times DMIC as the, as the target. So can you explain a little bit about designing that trial and then why that target was chosen? So that's um, the reason that that, target was chosen is because that is what was most commonly used in Germany at that time. There's a, a thought that if you're using continuous infusion, that it's very difficult to aim for a proportion of the MIC, of the dosing interval to have uh, an exposure above the MIC. Now, you can't really aim for 40 to 70% time above MIC. So the question then becomes, well, what do you aim for? Do you aim for 100% time above MIC or do you go back to the, you know, the infection model data that I raised earlier from Johan Luton and for four times MIC. The practice which they had developed obviously focused on that four times MIC. And um, yeah, that's quite an achievable exposure really with continuous infusion. With intermittent dosing, it's pretty difficult to get to 100% time by four times MIC. And even in our yeah. current dosing software studies that we do, Anytime that someone's missing the mark, you know, we almost always end up going to a continuous infusion or an extended infusion to try and get to you know, the exposures that we feel like are appropriate. 
but that's really the rationale. That, that's what their historical practice had been. They had been performing TDM for a long period of time. They'd used continuous infusions of Piperacillin and Tazobactam for a long period of time. As you can see from that, uh, that Daniel Richter study that I mentioned before, which was essentially a description of their therapeutic drug monitoring program and the outcomes associated with that. Thank you for that. And then last thing I want you guys to talk about before we dive into more of the operational piece, now that we've covered a lot of the clinical data, we mentioned a lot, Joe, you mentioned it earlier. I want to circle back to it is, you know, would you lower the dose ever? And, you know, the toxicity threshold, I don't know that we defined those. So I don't know who wants to go first. I know Jason and Vina, you have clinical practice experience to speak from and, and Joe and Mark, you intimately know the lab side, but when would you decrease the dose? What is the tox threshold for the different common beta-lactams? I'll let Vina go first and then I can comment or however she prefers. Yeah. I can certainly go first. So for toxicity thresholds, we generally reduce doses when concentrations are eight to 10 times above the MIC. Now that said, unfortunately, those thresholds are not very well defined for many beta-lactams. In our own experience, trying to determine causality between toxicity and drug concentrations, at least retrospectively, is very challenging. Just take cefepime, for instance. When we retrospectively looked at our neurotoxicity cases, we found elevated troughs in those patients that had toxicity as well as those non-neurotoxic cases, just suggesting that trough alone is unlikely to be the sole PK driver in cefepime neurotoxicity. We did, however, find elevated mean daily AUC in cefepime neurotoxicity cases, um, suggesting that overall drug exposure, overall cefepime exposure is likely driving this, this effect. So I do think that beta-lactam-related toxicities need to be studied and evaluated further, but these probably need to be done in prospective trials versus looking at retrospective or observational data. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I I, uh, I gave a talk at mid-year once and I got asked a question about cefepime toxicity and I inadvertently got really heated in front of a non-ID audience. And and then at the end, Joe actually came up to me and was like, Aaron, you were right. And I was like, <laughs> it was a moment for me. Um, but I think that we definitely, I think it's total exposure and I think we need a lot more data in this area, which is why I asked what you guys are aiming for right now. So Jason, do you have anything to add? Yeah, just really to support the fact that it's very sparse data. Um, on this topic, they are almost always just a trough concentration, which is um, calculated based on another CART analysis. And you know, that completely misrepresents the, the risk of toxicity that occurs because really it's on a continuous scale. It's not like you switch from a cathepine concentration of 20 and you're fine and then 21, oh, you're going to definitely get seizures. Yeah, it's not like that. It's all, it's like vancomycin and nephrotoxicity, you know. Um, concentration of 0.1 milligram per litre of vancomycin has a higher likelihood of nephrotoxicity than zero, and 0.2 does and 0.1, you know, it's just a continuum. It's just a question of whether or not there's some level of inflection point and whether or not your data can describe that. Um, the For what it's worth, that position paper on therapeutic drug monitoring, which was published in Intensive Care Medicine late, well, last year, summarised all the latest literature on what the different toxicity targets uh, based on current literature. But I would say that, you know, you have to weigh them up in the context of the patient that's in front of you because, uh, you know, they are 
you know, they're flawed data, uh, but they are a guide. Yeah. Oh, don't yeah, I'd, get I'd agree Mark, with that. I was going to um, say, don't get Mark started on vancomycin toxicity. Yeah. Mark, you're not allowed to talk about AUC dosing. Okay, I'll I'll stay away from vancomycin. Okay. Um, okay. But I I agree with Jason. I think there's something going on, especially with cefepime. So cefepime is an odd duck. I don't think that we fully understand cefepime toxicity and the mechanistic driver of it yet, because when you do look at those data, you really cannot tease out uh, a concentration driven toxicity endpoint. And I think we'll eventually figure out, maybe not we, but hopefully the broader we will eventually figure out the mechanistic driver there, which I do think uh, probably does have an exposure response relationship, uh, perhaps through something like a metabolite or something uh, similar to that. So I think cefepime is a, a bit of an odd duck. Um, what I would recommend um, for cefepime monitoring is really exposure matching. Um, we do know that the patients that do get cefepime neurotoxic um, almost universally have renal failure and probably have these you know high stacked concentrations over time and is that a high stacked metabolite we we really don't know um, but i don't think the full story is there yet as much as it is for the other beta lactam so i think more to come on that thank and you I won't, I won't talk about vancomycin toxicity today but just to add something on top of that aaron just in clinical practice it has been very, very useful to have a cefepime, the capability of checking a cefepime level to either um, validate some, uh, and typically it's an ICU provider's concern about cefepime toxicity, even though that, you know, that threshold, as we've discussed, is not, is not as, as clearly or well established, but either to validate the concern or, or to dismiss it. Because as you know, once that, that, that seed is planted, that cefepime is somehow contributing to neurotoxicity, there's no returning, that, that ship has sailed, right? There's no returning to cefepime or even considering it for a future uh, treatment. And so we've been able to kind of, I would say, control and manage that discussion a lot better when you have um, some objective data to put in front of the provider to say, you know, very unlikely that cefepime is what's causing your patient to be altered. Um, there's multiple other factors. A, they're in an ICU, they're getting all these other medications that could be could be contributing to uh, their altered status. So, yeah, absolutely. I um, so we did a we had a fellow that did a pilot study of cefepime TDM this year, and because we could not get a neurosurgeon to use cefepime if our life depended on it, like we couldn't trade our firstborn children to get a neurosurgeon to use cefepime, and and that's you know all due respect to neurosurgeons, one of my dearest friends is a neurosurgeon, but man. It was tough. But then once we had the study to offer them and we were like, we'll check a level and give feedback and whatnot, then all of a sudden everyone was okay with it. So I think to Jason's point, you know, now it's like, I don't know that we could get them to not do therapeutic drug monitoring in these select patient populations. So great point. Joe, before we move on to, you know, which patient populations and and how to operationalize this, do you have anything to add on the tox thresholds? No, I, I think everybody's covered it well. Um, I, I do think we need to move away from troughs as targets. Um, troughs don't even pharmacologically make sense because there are general, there are concentrations that are above them um, before they existed. And I think this is the comment you made at mid-year. Um, it, it's AUC. 
I mean, it's total drug exposure and it's probably exposure over time. So I'll only add and, and not something that we're we're looking at. But for those who are interested, I mean, you know, perhaps for something like cefepime neurotoxicity, we have to start looking at the site of the toxicity um, and, and not just the plasma. And that might be more revealing. So back to uh, yeah. a previous comment about lowering doses on, on TDM. We never really finished that. Um, and and I, I agree with Vina, you know, we generally don't go lower than what's already approved, but there certainly are, there, there's the right dose for the right patient for the right bug. Um, you know, ESBL, meropenem, 500Q6, 1 gram Q8, the MIC is so low, you know, you, you don't need to use 6 grams of meropenem uh, in, in those patients. So we will decrease doses um, back to, to something that's more kind of a standard for most hospital sites, not so standard for Hartford, um, back to a normal dose if, if the TDM and the MIC is low enough to justify it. It's a tough topic, though, because there are no studies. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, let's move then into operationalizing this and, and picking patients. Vina, you, way back at the beginning, had mentioned which patients you target for therapeutic drug monitoring. Can you just repeat that for us and reframe if you were going to start such a service, who would be the patients you start with who optimally benefit from therapeutic drug monitoring? Yeah, so, so we tried to cover that in our most recent uh, paper in pharmacotherapy, and everyone on this call has been, has been doing that as well, covering it in their papers. I think the ICU patient population is definitely at the top of the list. Um, there's a lot of changes and things that we do to those patients, um, and, and a lot of it is continuous renal replacement therapies, um, uh, ECMO, SLED, all the volume we give them, the other drug interactions, and then to add on top of that, that when they do get infected, um, they, they're often sicker than a non-ICU patient as a result of their infection. And and they have a higher likelihood of being infected with a higher MIC organism. So I think those, you know, collectively make the ICU patient an absolute, um, you know, perfect place to start. Uh, and, and we definitely focus in on our, our, our patients on CRRT, our patients on ECMO now. Um, so, so those are areas that we focus in on, but, but even patients who are not on those modalities, but aren't perhaps responding the way we hope the organism looks like it's susceptible and they're on a pretty max dose and they just not necessarily responding. That might be a, a, a patient population that we would, we would do TDM in. Um, so ICU is one, um, the, the other area to that that near and dear to me is CF. Um, although we are seeing less and less acute exacerbations of CF, which is absolutely wonderful. We have fewer and fewer patients in the hospital. When they do come in, it's the, you know, it's the same challenges. They are, they are smaller individuals. Um, they have different volumes of distribution. Some of them have uh, augmented renal clearance. And then they're often infected with multiple organisms and very high MIC organisms. So those are patients, the very first patient I personally ever did TDM in, and the first patient that I ever administered a prolonged infusion meropenem to was a CF patient with Burkholderia over 20 years ago. Um, and so, so that is another area that I think, you know, thankfully we're seeing less of them, but they would be uh, good candidates. Um, and then finally, I don't have personally have any experience, but pediatrics. Um, not a lot of 
dosing PK studies done in pediatrics. Um, and, and for, you know, for, for those little kiddos, you know, completely, completely different. Um, so, so I, I think those would be valuable to consider as well. I am so glad you mentioned peds because I wanted to ask Jason about their peds practice. And I think this segues well into my next question, which is, okay, so I picked my patients. I'm going to do beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring. What's the assay? How do I send it? Who's doing this? Who's running it? What does that look like? So I want everyone to talk about what assays they use in adults, but Jason, particularly your practice and your research in peds. I watched this YouTube video, I think two years ago about how you are doing pediatric therapeutic drug monitoring with just a drop of blood, because for those of our audience members who may not be aware or may not practice in pediatrics, you can only take so many mils or cc's of blood from a from a pediatric patient every day and it goes on their body weight and so often when you're rounding on pediatric patients the entire care teams and all consultants are bartering with each other so to speak to say which labs can we run today what tests can we run today because you can't send that much blood and so you guys came up with just a completely innovative system to check levels with just a drop of blood i believe so can you talk a little bit about that and then beta lactam assays in general Sure. So we um, we don't have pediatrics at our hospital. That's at a sister hospital, and uh, certainly their use of therapeutic drug monitoring is completely different to what ours is in terms of you know they are uh, you know they do it far less commonly, and a lot of that is because they just don't necessarily have someone who drives it and is able to then you know present the results of you know what the effects of TDM has been on uh, exposures to patients or what kind of concentrations uh, result. So we have a number of two PhD students that are doing studies in the intensive care unit at our major paediatric hospital. One of those is doing a, a large pharmacokinetic study, which is validating the microsampling techniques that you refer to. And we've now validated um, particular microsampling techniques of so that drop of blood approach for cefotaxime, vancomycin, and piperacillin. Um, as agents whereby now we would then need to convince our pathology laboratory to then develop that uh, that assay, which they will. Um, we just need to make sure that they, we know what suite of drugs to, to analyse. And so in that pharmacokinetic study, there's also three other drugs which are, are being studied as well. So kefazolin, yep, I thought you'd all appreciate that pronunciation, uh, meropenem, <laughs> And uh, another one as well, which escapes my mind at the moment. Uh, and then the other PhD is someone looking at uh, use of dosing software to optimise dosing based on therapeutic drug monitoring with microsampling. So, um, yeah, these assays are, as I'm sure everyone will attest to, are costly. And that's one of the reasons we don't see more beta-lactam TDM because they're not the easy immunoassays which exist for aminoglycosides and glycopeptides. It requires either an HPLC or an LCMS. So, yeah, an HPLC, you know, they're both chromatographic methods. An HPLC, you know, they're pretty reasonable cost, you know, maybe fifty to $60,000 uh, Australian, probably a similar cost US. Uh, an LCMS is somewhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand Australian dollars you know, so really expensive. And you have to be, but the bigger cost is the staff to be there to run the assays and run the quality controls to make sure that when, a result comes through on a day that it is actually you know, a correct result. Uh, and so um, we're lucky that we have a very big hospital pathology 
um, department that performs therapeutic drug monitoring on lots of drugs. Um, you know, so the, the technique is similar to what is the assay methodology required for triazole antifungals. And so they've just developed their assay to be a slight variation on what that antifungal assay is. So it's really easy for them to make a minor adjustment to the assay conditions so that they can then run the beta-lactams through. It's also a multi-analyte assay, which means that they're able to measure 11 different beta-lactams at one time, uh, and they just elute at different time periods. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that's the way that they've tried to develop efficiency. The cost which they charge is, is really very good, I think. It's $30 per sample, um, but they're on site for us. So that's very convenient for our hospital. But if you're a hospital which is 20 kilometres away or 200 kilometres away, um, let alone miles, then, uh, you know, it's far more difficult to get the results turned around in a reasonable period of time. And so that's why we're quite a heavy user, as are some of the other hospitals in Brisbane. But as soon as you move out of the metropolitan area, it becomes less useful because of that ability to turn around the results in a reasonable period of time. Yeah, I think, I mean, in-house testing is ideal for most things, but in particular, this is something I think is almost essential because getting your beta-lactam level three days later is probably not clinically useful. Vina, you guys have in-house testing as well. What is your assay look like? How did that get developed? And then what's the cost? Yes, we are very fortunate to have in-house beta-lactam TDM testing. Our assays are run at the University of Florida Infectious Diseases Pharmacokinetics Lab, IDPL, under the directorship of Dr. Charles Peliquin. This is a CAP-certified and clear licensed clinical lab. The lab currently has five high-performance mass spec instruments that run our assays. And as of now, beta-lactam TDM is available at our institution Monday through Friday for about 11 different beta-lactams. As I've previously mentioned, we currently get total beta-lactam concentrations. And just depending on when the sample arrives at our collab, the turnaround time for results is roughly about 24 hours. As far as the cost of testing, um, inpatients are billed for beta-lactam concentrations, just like any other lab, and the cost is bundled in the DRG. The IDPL charges about $70 per assay. Now, the cost may be lower if you are sending multiple samples, which can be batched. And this is usually the situation if you have multiple samples for research purposes. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we talk about this cost and people might be like, whoa, $70, but not to bring up VANC, but we never ask what a VANC level costs. And it's probably about that, if not more, and it's probably less useful. So um, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, Mark, Joe, anything to add with assays or costs before we segue into, okay, now I have a level, what do I do? The only thing I'll say is I think that we're still in the infancy here. So I think we eventually will transition away from chromatography methodologies. You know, VANC is actually pretty cheap because of the assays that we use. And I think that can be on the horizon with beta-lactams. The reason it's not is because there just isn't use. So once once there's a need, I think that the brilliant chemists around the world will come up with ways that we can make this cheaper and more available. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. So now we have talked about sending levels, what assays using. Now we get the level, right? We have a result. Two things. One, how are we analyzing that result? Are we using software, modeling? Are we doing math? Uh, are we asking people to do calculations? 
And then how are you, if you're doing this in your clinical practice, how are you reporting this result to clinicians in the EHR to make it usable? I can start here. So our current institutional practice is to obtain two concentrations, a peak and a trough. Now, these results are available in our EMR as soon as they're released by our lab. Once concentrations are back, the pharmacists perform non-compartmental analysis using first-order equations. So to answer your question, we're doing math. Fortunately, we have a homegrown Excel-based TDM calculator, which was developed by the IDPL lab that has um, been tremendously helpful in saving time for us so that we're not doing all these calculations by hand. To answer the PK software question, we are currently exploring the integration of PK software for Bayesian modeling. However, we are hoping to acquire some software to meet some dual needs. So we're looking for some software that will meet our needs for vancomycin TDM, as well as for our beta-lactam TDM as well. Vena, our practice is very similar. We sort of started being very um, coarse with our approach uh, because, you know, we're just sort of fumbling our way through the use of TDM. And then we developed um, uh, some more intellectual sophistication, which we then overlaid on top of the, the the crude nomograms that we had uh, and haven't really protocolized that any better than that. Uh, I would say that we are now, we have a couple of studies looking at the use of dosing software to see whether or not that can in, uh, reduce the time to therapeutic concentrations above and beyond what our, our usual approach is, but uh, we don't have any firm data to report on that. Uh, we've chosen a, a software which you know, it covers all of the different beta-lactams that we use. We can use it for vancomycin AUCs as well if we if we choose. And um, the one problem with all of these is that it doesn't really interface with the electronic medical record. Uh, there are some which have the capacity to do that, but, you know, there is a quite a large cost impost from an infrastructure perspective to get that established, and uh, we haven't been able to justify that locally uh, at this stage so yeah that's essentially where we are um, we report all of our results directly to the medical team as well as writing a, a note in the chart as well never really met with any instruction about any dose adjustments which which are suggested because i wouldn't necessarily say that we're overly cavalier with what our suggestions are we still tend to be quite um appropriately conservative with what our dose changes are anyway. Can I ask you a question, Jason? How often do you recommend follow-up concentrations? Is that a standard? Uh, quite. Well, it depends on the duration of therapy. Like a five-day course of antibiotics is pretty common for us uh, for most infections. And so if we get a, a level on day two uh, and it's, it's low and then we increase the dose, then it all depends on whether or not we're going to get that next result back at a time whereby we think that changing the dose is going to have a meaningful effect on the um, course for the patient. So if we think we're going to get it back on day four, but the team is already so confident in their therapy that they've already put a stop date at day five because they think we're not going to need any more than that, then we probably wouldn't bother doing a repeat level. Uh, so um, if they're longer courses, definitely. If the patient's really unwell, then definitely we will. Um, but we're quite lucky. We've expanded from a four-day-a-week service to a six-day-a-week service uh, recently, and so being able to get levels measured on a Saturday is really useful. 
Joe, anything to add on softwares or math? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we uh, I'm not that good at math, so we use software. Um, and, uh, you know, we're certainly not uh, doing the volume of TDM that Vina and Jason are. So ours are much more isolated cases. And because of that, I, I think we're aggressive with the number of samples we get. So it's not uncommon for us to, to get four or five samples uh, from a patient. We actually do the, uh, we, we process the ultrafiltrate and do protein binding. Um, and, and so therefore, when we when we have the concentration data, I can fit that individual, you know, with a, a one compartment, two compartment model in Win on Lin, or I can fit it in R um, with uh, with P metrics. So more more recently, we're doing, you know, since we're getting more patients and we have a library of patients over time on certain drugs, I just add them into the library and refit them to get their Bayesian estimates, and I do that in R. Um, so but we're, we're much more aggressive with the number of samples um, that we're getting, but we're not clearly doing the volume that Vina and Jason are. Awesome. You know, a physician the other day asked me what a Monte Carlo simulation was, like just to, they're like, I'm reading it, but I don't get it. Can you describe it? And I did. And then they were like, well, that, that seems weird. So then they called Tom Lodis and Tom said the same thing. And then they were like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I was like, it's a fancy um, place on the uh, Italian coast where, uh, you know, people go to gamble. All right. Right. If only. <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay. So on that note, and so, Joe, you have your department, Mark does as well. And then, Vina, you talked about, you obviously have a service. And, Jason, you said you just expanded from four days to six days. So have you guys used... TDM, beta-lactam TDM in particular, and your patient data to justify more services, more resources for this, more stewardship people. Any thoughts on that? It was as simple as that. We haven't used it for that reason. How'd you get people to agree to expand from four days to six days? That take, you know, you expanded resources there and people, like you said, people paying people to run the labs is one of the most important parts. Yeah, we've got some very charming people in our units and uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in truth, uh, uh, we obviously the, the lab does build a clinical unit for running the assay, and so the question then becomes: How do they get? How do they justify developing the assay and then fitting it into their system? And if they understand from us that, that we believe there's a clinical need, then we've got a really good relationship with them such that they will support that. Uh, I think that that's probably most important part to it. Yeah, they are also really strong partners with all of our research that we do as well. And so I think because they know that they're partners along that, that pathway, that they're really um, collaborative with all of the suggestions that we take to them. And they don't necessarily agree with all of them, but they're very supportive of us. So to answer your question about whether beta-lactam TDM can justify more stewardship resources, I think my answer is perhaps just depending on the size of your institution and how much TDM you do. Now, do I think stewardship should be integrated into any beta-lactam TDM program? Absolutely. Our stewardship pharmacists are very involved in the beta-lactam TDM program. We support the program in a number of ways. We help obtain and respond to concentrations. We write and maintain our policies. We educate and train staff. And, and most importantly, we serve as a liaison between our PK lab and our pharmacists and providers. Now that said, for 
any stewardship program to completely own and oversee a Biralactam TDM program would require extensive resources. And thinking about our own institution, with just over 1,100 licensed beds and 300 ICU beds, even if we had additional stewardship support, I don't think we can realistically support or provide consistent coverage for a beta-lactam TDM program. So our approach to beta-lactam TDM has really been to put it in the hands of our pharmacists and empower and enable them to use it as a tool in their clinical practice. I, I need to acknowledge our clinical pharmacists for taking the reins and, and really adopting this into their practice. It hasn't been easy, but I feel that we are moving the needle in the right direction. Now, there, there may be some creative approaches to building a beta-lactam TDM program. For instance, if you have a well-developed, well-staffed PK service, I can see how a beta-lactam um, TDM program can fit very well into an existing PK service. Awesome. Thanks. I want to wrap up here with three kind of rapid fire questions. Uh, so three pointed questions. First, is there any beta-lactam, if you were to pick one, that TDM is the most useful? If you were only going to do one. Mine would be meropenem because we tend to be using it in those situations whereby antibiotic therapy is more important. I'll also say meropenem because I just wait to hear what Jason says and then uh, try to copy his work. <laughs> I'd say I'd say cefepime. It's our workhorse drug. I feel like we can we can be more impactful just just by sheer volume. All right. Well, now that cefepime and meropenem have been taken, um, I can't say those. So uh, at the end of the day, I think it's the drug that you use probably the most often for the most difficult to treat infections. So it could be cefepime, it could be meropenem. You know, perhaps it's ceftazidime, Bactam. Um, if you're practicing in a hospital where, where you need to use that. So I, I think it's really going to be dictated on what your local, local flora are and what the resistance, uh, the phenotypic profiles look like and, and what your, your workhorse is. I'm so glad you said that because I'm like, perhaps it's AV Bactim itself and a beta-lactamase inhibitor kinetics is beyond the scope of this podcast, but a topic near and dear to my heart, largely just because Pittsburgh broke Ceftaz AV for the rest of the world. But I think that's a whole nother thing to consider is the concentration of the beta-lactamase inhibitor. Jason, I think you're going to add something. Yeah, I can't believe Jay didn't say cathedrical. I thought for sure that was going to be his, his go-to and that being a workhorse drug at uh, Hartford. Teasing. So call gets phenomenal exposures. It just doesn't correlate to anything, it seems. Um, okay, next targeted question. Is there any role for beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring with narrow spectrum beta-lactam, such as cefazolin, oxacillin? I'll go first. And, you know, just to sort of say in a similar way to what Joe said, I think the answer is, the answer is yes. And so this variability is huge. And clinicians know when they need the more precision approach. Um, so I think the answer will be when you need that precision approach is probably when I see that being useful. And also from a just a practice standpoint, one, one issue we're facing in our pediatric population is there is a much greater tendency to streamline de-escalate oral therapy faster. In fact, I think that's been Part of our problem is we can't we can't check a beta lactam level fast enough because the the practice is such that patients are streamlined very very quickly. So some of these oral antibiotics I think will 
or having the capability to, to do TDM, there'll be more uptake and more use in our pediatric patient population, certainly. You read my mind for the next and final question is that, is there utility of beta-lactam TDM for oral antibiotics? Routine use and then you know, something that comes up a lot for, I think, a lot of us is what do I do with my 150 kilo patient that's on Augment in 875 BID? Is there a role there? I'll yeah. say possibly, but we wouldn't, it would be very rare for us to go down that path. Yeah, we haven't done uh, anything with the, with the oral agents per se outside of, of specific PK studies. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, understanding now how you know, the, the susceptibility breakpoints for many of these oral agents were set and how they're used and applied. And everyone just assumes that these organisms are susceptible and they, that may not necessarily be the case as to what we're, we're learning when you really go back and, and, and look at the variability in absorption, and not just the, the, the actual PK variability if you were to give them via IV, but, but absorption itself, um, there, there perhaps is a role uh, for it. I, I think for many infections right now that we use oral therapy, it's mop up um, after the patients have already most likely been treated adequately uh, with IV. And it's just this kind of feel good uh, thing that a lot of our providers still want to do. I'm like, yeah, probably don't need to do that. But if that's going to make you sleep at night, go ahead and give them the, the oral therapy to, um, to, to, you know, I have no idea if that's, if it's doing anything. Um, but you know what, we're becoming more aggressive with giving oral therapy to treat the active infection now. And, and in those types of cases, I think uh, there will potentially be some value to, to understanding drug exposure for those agents. So uh, too early to tell. All right. All right. So we're wrapping up this episode, which has been jam packed with just amazing content. Thank you everyone for all of your insights. We wrap up the podcast with our new segment called I Feel Nerdy. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, you guys have 30 seconds or less each to share what your favorite beta lactam is and why. And Mark, you're going first thing so if i had to pick one um it would be piperacillin and tazobactam why because we use the absolute heck out of it we abuse the heck out of it and uh it's still around it still has decent resistance profile and it's really gotten a bad rap lately and i can give you an hour-long talk on why i think it's had a and then i'm getting that stare again so thanks so much for the opportunity this has been a blast all right jason you're next the mine's also well mine's piperacillin i don't care too much about taser back to him and so you can treat me for that <laughs> but mine's piperacillin for all the reasons that mark said but also because i find it strangely variable in its pharmacokinetics in icu patients and i can never guess what a patient's concentration is going to be with it and one day i will get it all right joe my favorite beta-lactam is any one that i'm using to get them off of quinolone um <laughs> you sure. You know, no, I, I would probably say meropenem. Um, it, it actually was a, a large part of my career early on was a lot of the PKPD studies with meropenem. It was the first drug that I ever did TDM on. It was the first drug that I've ever used a prolonged infusion on. Um, so, so that one's near and dear to me. Awesome. It was the first drug I did TDM on too, but I'm not as, as cool as you are. Vina. I would have to say my... Favorite beta lactam is epidroxyl. 
in my opinion, it's an unassuming orbital lactam that lives under the shadows of cephalexin a little bit. Cephadroxyl is a derivative of cephalexin with a very similar spectrum of activity and also really good bioavailability. Now, the added advantage of cephadroxyl is it's twice daily dosing compared to four times a day dosing with cephalexin. Now, I recognize there are a lot of issues associated with susceptibility testing, particularly the use of cefazolin susceptibility to predict cephadroxyl susceptibility. Now, even with that, if you look at uncomplicated lower urinary tract infection data, early clinical and microbiological cure rates between when you compare them between cephalexin and cephadroxyl are high and comparable. So if compliance is an issue and cost is not a barrier, consider cephadroxyl, particularly in lower urinary tract infections. I love that curveball at the end. My favorite beta-lactam is cefazolin uh, for similar reasons. And then also I actually love how the cefazolin breakpoints are kind of a headache because I think it really makes us think about the whole breakpoint discussion, which is a, obviously a whole nother discussion. But this has been a fabulous episode. Thank you all for all of your insights. For our listeners, the show notes will be chock full of all of the references we've discussed, along with several other references from our prolific authors. So please check those out and check out some really great publications and then be on the lookout for emerging data in this space, as Dr. Roberts alluded to as well. And I'm sure a lot more data to come from all of these wonderful panelists. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers today have been Dr. Veena Vena-Gopalan, Mark Sheets, Joe Cuddy, and Jason Roberts. This episode was produced by Dr. Zara Escobar and Rachel Britt. It was edited by our excellent publications and podcast committee. Our production team includes Drs. Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julianne Justo and Erin McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials, both now and for the future. <laughs> <laughs>